If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor. And it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection. And I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Hey there, welcome to the Behind the Mirror podcast. You are in for such a treat today. Today I get to sit down with B.T. Harmon, or as you may know him, Brett Trapp. He is most known for his blog, Blue Babies Pink. And I tell you what, this is one of my favorite conversations this season on the show. He is such a joy to talk to, and his passion for what he does and his work is just contagious. I, the whole time, was grinning ear to ear and crying at some points and just being moved with emotion all over the place over so much of what he talked about. So I cannot wait to share this conversation with you. Now, I have to also talk about other conversations that are such a joyful part of my day, and those come from our Facebook community. If you are not in that community, you are missing out. This is such a wonderful group of people that I would love to introduce you to. You can opt in on my website at justajesusfollower.com backslash podcast, backslash podcast group. And I cannot move another step in this intro without thanking our faithful Patreons. You guys are the blood behind this show and this work that I do, and I couldn't do it without you. Each and every one of you are awesome, and I just am so thankful every time I sit down to record for each of you. So thank you to each and every one of you. If you are interested in supporting this show, you can find out more by going to my website, justajesusfollower.com, and by clicking on the button Patreon. Now, without any further ado, I cannot wait to introduce you to my new friend, BT Harmon. Here we go. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today I have a special guest with me. I have BT Harmon. And welcome. Oh my gosh, we're so excited you're on the show. Thank you so much. I'm pumped to be here, Anna. Thanks. Oh, well, I know many of my listeners are fans of you and follow your work. And many people first became aware of you when you released your blog, Blue Babies Pink. And to date, Blue Babies Pink has drawn nearly 100,000 readers from around the world and spawned a 2,200-mile, five-city bookless tour. And in 2017, the series released a podcast and hit number one on the iTunes Religion and Spirituality chart and the top 50 of all podcasts worldwide, which is not an easy feat. To date, Blue Baby's Pink podcast episodes have been downloaded over 950,000 times. Oh, my word. Did <laughs> you ever lot. think? Did you think that would be your intro ever anywhere? 
Oh no, no, no idea that that would happen. And I'm, I am kind of wanting to hit that million number. So, you know, if, if you haven't listened, feel free to tune in and, and, you know, push those numbers just a little bit higher. So it's, it's been fun. Yes. And for some of my listeners who may not know what Blue Babies Pink is all about, can you explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Blue Babies Pink, it's a, it's a story uh, that's really in two formats, a blog and a podcast. Both of them are exactly the same. It's the same content on both. I launched it as a blog and then in 2017, just literally read the entire thing <laughs> into a microphone for the podcast because, you know, there's just people out there who would prefer to listen than read. And so that was great because it opened up, you know, a brand new uh, group of people into sort of uh, the story. But but yeah, Blue Baby's Pink is really just my uh, story of my life growing up as the son of a Southern Baptist pastor. Uh, I had two older brothers, mom, dad, fantastic Christian Southern evangelical family. Uh, we lived in a little town called Florence, Alabama, which is a town of about 50,000 people. And so grew up as a PK. I, you know, I really came to know Christ at the age of about 14 at a charismatic revival in Pensacola, Florida. That's where I really experienced God and, you know, Jesus for the first time. I went to a small Christian high school, got heavily involved in my church's youth group and was sort of, you know, the quintessential youth group leader, you know, all through high school, played basketball, football in high school. Um, but, you know, the whole time was sort of carrying this secret around, as many others, you know, have and still do, uh, that I was uh, same-sex attracted. I was attracted to the same sex. And so, you know, my way of dealing with it back then was really just to stick my head completely in the sand, uh, ignore it, deny it, and really just with this deeply embedded hope that, you know what, one day this will go away. I will pray this away. God will deliver me from this, whatever kind of language you want to use. And so graduated high school, went to college. In college, I was part of campus ministry, was the president of my fraternity all the while, not dating, not, you know, allowing myself to even acknowledge that this thing was real. And really at that time in my life, I had just convinced myself that, you know, this is what God wants. God wants me on this lifelong path of singleness and celibacy. And that's what I was committed to because I thought that was the only way to, you know, to make God happy and to please him because I was just not attracted to women. You know, I always said like, <laughs> maybe if I was bisexual, I could have, you know, like married a woman and not worried about it. But just as strongly as I was attracted to men, I was just as strongly not attracted to women, though most of my really good friends and still are to this day, you know, women. Uh, but graduated college in 2005, threw myself into work. I jumped on board with a, a young startup and really just became a workaholic all through my 20s. And, you know, that was really my chief coping mechanism. And Anna, I'm sure you've you've dealt with similar things, you know, when you've got something in your life that that you don't like, that you don't know how to deal with, that you can't talk about, you're going to reach for something to, you know, kind of make that pain go away. What most people call a coping me mechanism, for me, it was work. I just I loved work. I still love work, but really to an unhealthy degree back then. I was working 16 hours a day sometimes just trying to create enough noise that I didn't have to think about this one massively wrong piece of my life. And so really progressed in my 20s. I lived in Birmingham, Alabama for a while, did a stint in Nashville, again, getting transferred with my job, eventually landed in Atlanta. But kind of as I was progressing in my career, that anxiety, that loneliness was just growing. It was reaching a fever pitch. You know, some of your listeners can relate with this. You know, when you get in your 20s now, you know, Facebook and Instagram amplify everyone else's 
joy, you know, like Mm -hmm. somebody gets engaged, they get married, they have children, it's all right there. And so I was at this point in life where though I had this incredible community of friends, I kept sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, losing friends to, to the married world, because once people get married, you know, they're just, they're not able to hang out as much. And so I just began to have this feeling of like, what do I do when I run out of friends? You know, like I can't get married. Mm. Everyone else is getting married. And so that, that just increased this internal negative dialogue. It was just constantly ringing around in my head. And so eventually, you know, and I'm I'm kind of giving a summary of blue baby's pink later in the story, later in my twenties, I reach a breaking point uh, that was just really unhealthy with a lot of anxiety that sort of began to manifest itself in a really negative physical way. And so, uh, eventually ended up coming out to close friends and family. Uh, and then in 2016, I really just, you know, for lack of a better term, I'm going to use some churchy language. I felt called to put this story online and the name that I chose was blue babies pink. And there's a sort of a whole story around that name, but, uh, put that story out there in 2016 and quite a few people jumped on board, began to read it. And, uh, to, to I think to date about a hundred thousand people have engaged with the story at some level, either on the blog uh, or the podcast. And so, you know, it's, it's been a really interesting uh, journey to go from uh, closeted, uh, very scared, you know, <laughs> Christian gay man into being just a lot more open. And I've experienced so much freedom and so much joy since coming out of the shadows. And that's just a, a big lesson I've learned is, you know, our secrets have so much power over us. And when we're out hiding and we're in darkness, boy, it can just absolutely have us by the throat. Uh, but when we bring those secrets into the light, it just brings uh, just the greatest amount of healing. And so that's really what I've been experiencing the last couple of years since putting the story out there. And I just feel healthier, happier, more clear-minded, physically healthier than I have been in my entire life. So it's been a journey. <laughs> I can say that. Oh my gosh. And it's been a beautiful one to watch. And one of the things that I loved so much about your blog was how vulnerable and raw you were. It was what was so captivating for me. And I'm sure so many other people that read it and had have listened to your podcast. And we talk a lot on this show about being authentic and being brave enough to be our true selves. And, you know, when you read a blog like yours, it can seem so easy. Like, oh, my gosh, he just vomited his whole story out there and it was no sweat. It was no big deal. But can you give some insight behind that? Like, how were you able to be so brave to take that step and share your story? Well, it's a a classic example, Anna, of, you know, from what the public sees was this the initial launch of this blog and then me kind of going down this road of of hyper vulnerability. You know, what most people did not see is the literal you know, decade before that of doing the work to get myself in a healthy place to get there. You know, you, I don't think anyone just comes out of the womb with this burning passion to be vulnerable and be transparent and be honest. You know, it's actually the opposite. From a young age, we're taught to hide, to conceal. We're taught that we're not enough and that, you know, whatever we've been given in life is ultimately not enough. Therefore, we have to posture, put on masks, et cetera. And so, you know, when I finally got to that point, I I had done the work of, uh, you know, working on myself, working on my soul. Obviously, God is, you know, a big part of that. You know, if you want to call that sanctification or call it self-development, you know, whatever you want to call it, there was a lot of stuff that had been happening me, happening in me before this blog ever launched. You know, a big part of that came through community. You know, one of the things I talk a lot about is how I just really believe the key to vulnerability is having some kind of rock solid core community around you. And it may only be 
four people, five people, eight people. But you know what I've learned is that when you have when you have those people there, it's like if everyone else in the world walks out when you reveal this person that you are, reveal the secret that you've been hiding. If everybody walks out, as long as those four or six or eight people are still there, you can make it. Or at least that that was my story. And so I'd really been cultivating this really tight-knit group of friends that I knew. All right, Brett, if everyone hates this blog and everyone thinks you're a freak and everyone walks out of your life, these people are not going to go anywhere. And so I think that's a big part of it, community. I think a second piece of vulnerability for me has just been the concept of death, <laughs> you know, like mm. I think about death a lot, you know, probably to an unhealthy degree at times, but you know, there's a lot of research that shows that when we think about death, it actually, it brings, it can bring up a lot of positive emotions. It can spur gratitude in us because my gosh, when you wake up every day thinking, you know what, I'm not going to be here in 50 years, most likely or 60 years or 70 years. Like I need to just grab this day. I need to you know, make the most of this day. Uh, and we just don't have time to be living these fake lives. And the reality is most people live and die, never leaning into that vulnerability piece, never learning how to be authentic. They live their entire lives with the voice of their mom or their granddad or their best friend or their cousin, you know, that voice that all of us have, that person that we feel like we need to appease, that we were trained to appease, that we were brainwashed to appease. And, and so many people live and die and they never get past uh, that. And they never realize that this is your life. You get one shot. You get exactly one shot, you know, to, to, to do this thing. And so I just think about that stuff a lot. And boy, when you think about that, it just changes how you approach life. It drains out a lot of fear. It gives you courage. And, uh, and then just having a fundamental belief that life is better when you live it honestly. You know, when, when, when we right. trap ourselves in this web of lies and deception or, uh, you know, inflating ourselves or trying to be somewhere we're not, that is just absolute poison. And so, you know, all these little sort of things, uh, you know, combining in my head, I think, is what has given me the courage to step out and, and be vulnerable. And, you know, there are ways I could be more vulnerable and more authentic, but I'm proud of sort of the, the, the steps that I've taken thus far. Well, and you mentioned in that how so many people get stuck with their mom's voice playing on repeat in their head or their friend's voice or basically the script that's been typed out for them for their whole life. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. A lot of people feel stuck in that tension between, okay, this is who I feel I'm supposed to be, but yet there's this this script, this playwright written for me. And so I'm sure you wrestled with that. How did you break that tension? How did you work your way through that part of your journey? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, everyone, depending on their cultural context, is handed some kind of script, some kind of list of expectations that we all either are overtly taught or we subconsciously absorb in the culture around us. You know, me, growing up as a middle-class male in, you know, the South, Southern America, the state of Alabama, you know, there was a very specific script. Uh, you know, grow up, be manly, be masculine. If you can play, you know, high school sports, do that. Go to college, you know, get a solid degree, get a good job, find a girlfriend, get married, have two kids, uh, you know, and live the corporate dream, go to church, be a good citizen, et cetera. And so, you know, I think that's a great script. I think that's a fantastic script for a lot of people and there's really nothing wrong with it. But I think what causes a lot of anxiety for someone who you're born into an off-script off situation, you know, when you're staring at the script and you're thinking, I can't, I can't do this. You know, I don't have the tools to 
to fulfill this script and this is what everyone wants and expects of me, you know, that's where a lot of, a lot of anxiety, a lot of, you know, even mental health stuff can begin to stack up. And so this is what I struggled with, you know, of all my closeted years, 10 or 15 years of having this secret, being super scared. I was just dealing with not wanting to accept being off script. You know, I just came into the world with a lot of, uh, positive things. You know, I guess you could call it privilege. I had a lot of privilege growing up and I was a beneficiary of a lot of that. And, you know, I didn't want to give that up. I didn't want to be, you know, weird for lack of a better term. There was just so much safety in being normal and being a part of sort of the dominant majority. And so, you know, while I was dealing with my sexuality, there was a big part of it was just dealing with this whole issue around accepting being unusual, you know, or, or not, not even being unusual, but having a script that is not the norm, you know, for lack of a better term. And so, you know, but what I just discovered is, boy, once I finally let go of that, and really it was so rooted in pride. Once I let go of the pride of wanting to be viewed a certain way and wanting to be viewed as this very, you know, alpha male stand-up hetero leader, once I just said, you know what, Brett, that's all crap. Um, And I just accepted that this is my story. I can't change it. And the quicker than I can accept it, the happier I'll be. And once I did that, again, everything, everything shifted and life got a whole lot sweeter. Oh my gosh. I love that. That is so liberating for so many people to hear. Thank you for sharing that part because I know that is something so many people struggle with and can relate to. So I I just, I admire that part of your journey so much. You received a lot of attention from Blue Babies Pink, which stirred a lot of needed conversation inside the Christian community. What, if anything, surprised you the most from how people responded to you? I would probably say the most surprising thing was really the lack of hate that I received, which might be surprising oh, to some people. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Like I, you know, it's funny, like when you're when you've lived your whole life closeted, you just there is this day, this mysterious, fateful day in your future when you're going to, you know, come out of the closet. And for many people, <laughs> you know, I did, I viewed this day as this was doomsday. This was my own personal apocalypse where everything I had worked for and built was going to come crashing in and people were going to throw me under the bus and walk out of my life and tell me that I was going to hell. And, you know, when that day came, it just wasn't anything like that. <laughs> you know, like I was met with so much love, you know, uh, and, mm-hmm. and in the form of, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of messages on Facebook, Instagram, email. I think I even got message over LinkedIn, you know, of people... Uh, you know, congratulating me. You know, everyone has a different response. Congratulations, or I'm proud of you, or you know, whatever it may be. Now, now, granted, there definitely was an element of negativity. There were people who were negative. I did get handwritten notes from you know some old lady I went to church with telling me that I was wrong, and you know, but that again, I just I'm the kind of person I focus on the positive as much as possible, and so really, it was you know the overwhelming majority of feedback was positive. And though I was sort of steeped in evangelical culture, though most of my friends were still a part of that world, and that was all I knew growing up was sort of this Southern evangelical culture, Christian music and going to church and doing Christian ministries. You know, I was really surprised at the amount of positivity that I received. And, you know, I may be an outlier. I know there are people out there who definitely have dealt with much more negativity. I think part of it was the age, you know, that I came out at, which is, I guess, 34, I think was the age. So, you know, I think being 34, being older, being confident, being self-sufficient might have staved off some of those negative Nancys. And, you know, I think if you're younger, you probably that just by nature of your age, you invite more people 
to speak into your life in a negative way. So, so yeah, I think overall, uh, you know, there's more positive than negative. I love that. And I hear people say a lot that when they go through any sort of transition, whether it's something big like coming out or something like a divorce or just a big shift in life, they're often surprised at who supports them and then equally surprised by who doesn't. <laughs> like you yeah. just really don't know. You really don't know. But I love how for you, you were just overwhelmingly shocked at the amount of positivity you received. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you still have to create sort of a mind space of how to deal with that negativity because, you know, I think it's been called haters math, but, you know, it's like 99 compliments plus one critique equals one mm -hmm. critique, you know, so, so there's definitely a sort of a mental discipline of learning how to process that negativity. But, you know, I think for me, I'm just the kind of person I'm going to fixate and be grateful for the, for the overwhelmingly positive stuff. And then I'm going to process the negativity in a much, you know, different way. Right. Oh, that's so good. Okay. So after Blue Baby's Pink, you released BP Plus, which is like the next chapter in the Blue Baby's Pink story. And you talk about your thoughts since Blue Baby's Pink. You offer resources for parents of LGBT kids. And you also get into how you transitioned from traditional to affirming. And this kind of feels like where you dive into an even deeper conversation. So what was the thought behind BP Plus? Yeah. So those of you, maybe some of your listeners have listened to the Blue Baby's Pink podcast. You know, what you notice for those who've listened to it, and I actually say this in the opening episode, I say, you know what, this, this story is not about theology. That's not the point of this whole thing. And, you know, this is where I had been watching for years the, the horrifying culture wars around this issue with the church yeah. versus the LGBT community and and then, you know, divisions within the church around the theology. And so and I just said, you know what, what I see is that whenever this comes up, everybody shuts down. Everybody goes into what I call a siege mentality of I'm going to protect what I already believe and I'm not going to listen. So I was intentional to say that's not what this story is about. This is simply one man's very private, very closeted journey of dealing with this very heavy thing alone. So there really was no, you know, theological direct stuff in there, you know? Uh, and then the other second thing is that Blue Baby's Pink, it ended very abruptly. And again, those of you who've listened to the story or read it, you know that it sort of ends abruptly, a little bit in a frustrating way for a lot of uh, listeners mm -hmm. and readers. They left people with a lot of questions. And that was really by design. You know, all of us are addicted to fairy tale endings and positive, happy, you know, Hollywood style stories. And I just said, you know what, that's not how I want this story to end because that's, that's not real life. And that's really not how I feel like things are at the time that I was writing it. And so, so anyways, to answer your question, BBP plus is sort of my way of addressing all of that ambiguity in those questions. So it's just like a, think of it as like a content bundle. It's a combination of videos some PDFs. There's a 75 page ebook in there where I answer reader questions, you know, for about two years, I had people send in questions about the story, questions on my beliefs on things. So I answer those things in depth. Uh, there's a resource guide in there where I point people to all my favorite books and podcasts and articles about sort of, you know, the LGBT issue in the church. Uh, and then I think the sort of the, the most meaty piece is a three-part video series where I explain my transition from, you know, again, I spent most of my life on the, what I call the traditional side of this argument, meaning, you know, believing the traditional Christian sexual ethic that, that God can only bless 
you know, sexual relations or marriage between a man and a woman. So I talk about my, my transition from that belief to where I am now, which is I'm fully affirming. And I do believe that God can and does bless faithful, loving, uh, committed same sex relationships. So I think that whole video series is like two and a half hours long. So it was, uh, there was a lot there, but you know, I really just wanted people to see kind of how I made that tradition, how I moved through that process. Cause it was a multi-year journey of me reading and understanding and thinking and crying and really just wanting people to see that, you know, this isn't just about me, you know, giving into culture or giving into my sin, which often gets thrown in my face. You know, that's, that's not what it's about. And for those of us who are on the, you know, more progressive Christian side of this conversation, that's never been what this is about. And for those of us who are gay, it's always been extremely personal and it has nothing to do with, you know, the cultural conversation happening around us, although that certainly has an influence on how we get there. But yeah, so that's PBP Plus. Uh, it's been out, you know, for a few weeks and and it's been really well received. I'm really proud of it. Good, good. I When I found that on your website, I was so excited about it because I, like you said, was one of those readers that was like, wait, wait. <laughs> After I got to the end of all your episodes reading them, I was like, I want to know his thoughts on all the things. And you broke it down beautifully. And I think one of my favorite things about it is it's because like you said, there are people that get militant on both sides of this conversation and they just will not budge. But your resources that you offer on this part of your website, it's such a bridge. It is really a bridge between those two spaces, and there's not a lot of that out there. So I, I applaud that part of your work. It's it's amazing. And I encourage anybody listening that would like to know more of his thoughts on that to check that part out of his website. It's so good. Thanks, Anna. Yeah. And you said it's been received really well? Yeah, it really has been. You know, um, I think, yeah, just filled in the blanks for all those unanswered questions and, um, yeah, provides a lot more context for uh, the bigger story and sort of the internal struggle I was dealing with sort of towards the end as I began to uh, come out of that more traditional mindset. So good. So good. And you travel and you speak and you talk to people from all over the country, which is so good. And you've become a trusted resource for so many people and friends and family of the LGBT community. Is there a common thread you would say that you've seen in the stories that you hear of LGBT people who come from a faith background? Yeah, I hate to say it, but I would really have to say it's just crippling fear. You know, that's what mm. all of us share in common. You know, you've got to imagine, Anna, I mean, just imagine, you know, a lot of my gay friends began to realize they were gay at a very young age. You know, I've got friends who knew they were gay when they were seven. I know moms who knew their children were gay when they were three. You know, so this is something that we begin to figure out early on, because again, we live in a society that is just washed floor to ceiling in heterosexuality, you know, our music, yeah. our movies, everything is pointing towards one man and one woman and children and family and that kind of thing. And so when you're watching all of this unfold in culture on a daily basis, and you realize, again, you don't have the equipment to achieve what our society holds up as, you know, the ultimate, you know, uh, achievement in life, which is to, you know, have a family, kids, et cetera. Oh, it just begins to breed the worst kind of fear and anxiety in you. Then you layer on top of that kids going to churches where you've got, you know, pastors preaching these angry sermons about how homosexuals are, you know, they're an abomination. They are a sign of God's judgment. They are, you know, spreading HIV and AIDS, and eventually they're going to go to hell. Mm. You know, so again, just imagine being a 12-year-old boy in Omaha bearing that burden. 
you know, bearing that. And so again, you want to talk about fear. And, and then once you figure out that this is such a taboo topic that, you know, in the boys' locker room, you know, they're joking about gay people and using homophobic slurs or even hearing your parents do that. A lot of gay people grew up hearing their parents talk terribly about the LGBT community. So that then brings in a level of family fear of, oh my gosh, once someone figures this out, you know, I'm going to lose all of them and I'm going to be alone. You know, I said in Blue Baby's Pink, I, I had this embedded internal uh, robotic voice in my head day and night basically saying, you know, Brett, if people really knew you, they would not love you. Mm. That was the lie tattooed in my mind every single day when I was closeted. Brett, yeah, everybody likes you now and they think you're a leader and they think you're a good person and they respect this, that, and the other. But if they really knew you, they would not love you. And so that's the script that a lot of us have playing in our heads. And so, so I think that's it. To answer your question, fear is the common denominator. It's amplified by coming from a religious background. You know, Anna, again, I like to focus on the positive. Things have gotten better. Things are getting better. Uh, there are so many good allies and advocates out there now, organizations. There are little rays of hope and positive things that LGBT people can anchor into. Um, but until they're able to do that, boy, there's a lot of fear and a lot of almost, you know, internalized trauma around that. You know, it's, there's, again, more research around when you live in this state of fear. It is it's as if you are living under a state of terrorism, you know, sort of this mm -hmm. self-imposed terror that you have to deal with. And it wreaks terrible, terrible results in the minds and hearts, particularly of young people. So, you know, it's, I hate to be negative because it's, it's not a pretty thing, but you know, it is what it is. And we've got a lot of work to do to eliminate, you know, begin to eliminate the fear that so many of these young kids are carrying around with them. Oh my gosh. Yes. And, and I appreciate your raw honesty there because you're right. It is an ugly, nasty thing that our society has created. And so I appreciate you being so forthcoming in that answer. I really do. When you hear all of these stories from all of these people that you meet with, what breaks your heart the most? What is the resounding thing that that tugs at your heart the most? Gosh, you know, I've heard so many stories. I, you know, they all run together in my mind. I, you know, I feel like the one I'm hearing most often that is just absolutely heartbreaking are gay folks who married someone of the opposite sex, you know? Mm. A man who was gay, same-sex attracted, whatever you want to call it, you know, could did not feel safe coming out. So he ended, so he married his best friend from college, a female, or or the opposite, a woman who married a man that you know perhaps they never told their spouse, perhaps they did tell their spouse that happens because they felt like they had no other options. And you know, when you hear the stories of these people and you hear about their journey and how you know the anxiety and the depression and uh, the suicidal ideation just it grows over time. Now, granted, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush. I have talked to a few folks, and I mean, I can count them on one hand, who are in what, you know, these are called mixed orientation marriages, and they're, they're doing okay. Or perhaps they would say that they're thriving. And I, I do not fault them for that. And I wish them nothing but the best. But, but oh, that is, that is, from my understanding of, again, talking to lots of these people, that is an exception uh, and not the rule. Uh, it's just messy, because once you have, once marriage, you know, comes into play, now we have the fear of, again, if there's going to be a divorce that happens, you're going to let down your spouse who you probably love. And then you're, you've got, if there's kids at play, that just complicates things because that person then gets demonized as sort of a homewrecker. And, you know, it's just very, very messy, very, very hard. And so I have so much compassion uh, for the folks that I know that are going through this. And, uh, you know, so again, some are handling it well. Some are, you know, learning to 
to take that step forward and figure out what life looks like and being honest, you know, coming out to their spouse or whatever it may look like. So I think that's what's breaking my heart the most right now. Uh, and again, I just look, you know, I, I chalk that up to the the taboo around this topic, to all the fear, to all the pressure that's on people to live this heteronormative script that we've talked about. And so I just, I long for a day where that's just not the case, you know, where people, they view that is not the only option. And they really can see the, you know, another path that I think will lead to much more life, much more joy, much more human flourishing. Well, and you, you touch on there almost a, a common theme and not even just touching the, the gay side of things versus the heterosexual side of things, but even just people in general inside faith communities, there is a huge fear of being exposed, period. And so it's like this whole subject is on just a huge magnified grandiose scale, but, but this goes so deep into so many people who are dealing with so many different things that they feel like, oh my gosh, if anybody knew, I would be completely excommunicated. That fear thing kicks into play. So for those listening that may not relate to your story in particular or other people in that community's story, it's like all of us can relate to that thing, that fear of being exposed and being stripped down and having people shame you for it or having yourself be rejected for that. It's such it's such a tragedy that I see play out in faith communities so many times. And it just it breaks my heart in two. Yep. You're exactly right, Anna. Everybody's got, you know, everybody's got something they're hiding (laughs) or something they're ashamed of, you know, to some degree, you know, whether it's being gay or something, you know, different from that. But yeah, it is, it's a shame that our churches are not the safest places to be open. And, And in fact, they're actually, they're the opposite. They're some of the scariest places to be open and honest. And again, that's something I really wish, I really wish we could, we could change. Well, I think your work is headed in that direction. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted you on this show, because I love, like I said earlier, you are such a bridge builder. And I just, I love that about what you do. In one of the episodes on your blog, you talk about lifeboats and you recently released a video based on this episode. And for those who may not have read or listened to that episode, can you give an overview of what that one was about? Sure. Yeah. The episode you're talking about, it's uh, episode number 29. So you could look it up on the blog right now and scroll down and find it. But yeah, the name of the episode is called Lifeboats. And the 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 story starts with uh, what I call the scariest day of my life, which is the day I drove to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, absolutely gripped by fear and came out to my mom. My mom is a fantastic person, loves God, you know, pretty conservative in her in her beliefs. And so I was, I was just terrified of how she was going to respond. I didn't think that she, you know, was expecting it. And so really, really, really tough day. And so I wrote about that in the first part of the episode. And then as I was sort of wrapping it up, I just had this nagging sense that there was like something else, you know, I mean, Anna, you're a writer. She'd get this, like just this weird sense of like, Brett, there's more, like there's something else that you need to put into this story. And all of a sudden, just this little image sort of floated across my mind of, of a lifeboat, you know, this like orange lifeboat bobbing up and down in the ocean with a little kid inside. And I instantly, you know, felt like that was me. You know, this is the story, uh, you know, the best metaphor I could come up with of what it feels like to be young, gay, and closeted. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I just began to write and I really just described, you know, this idea of being in a lifeboat lost at sea day and night alone, no map, no paddle, no water, no compass, you know, and, and as I was writing this, I mean, I just began to, I, I mean, just weep. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not talking crying. I'm talking like 
the kind of weeping where you're like choking on your own, you know, like snot. It was, it was messy, but it felt really special and it felt really divine. And, and as it turns out, you know, that ended up being by far the most resonant piece of all of Blue Baby's Pink. It's 90,000 words. And I think those thousand words in that story uh, gripped people more deeply than anything else that I wrote about. And so, uh, you know, so many LGBT people wrote me saying, gosh, BT, you captured it. Mm. That's exactly how I felt, you know, bearing this secret, not able to talk to anyone, not knowing which direction to even try to go because there's no script for this. There's no handbook that you can, you know, read when you're 14 and dealing with this. And so, so yeah, I, uh, I wrote that story. I had, you know, major resonance with a lot of the audience of Blue Baby's Pink. And then, you know, just uh, decided to sort of convert it into a video, just a little five minute video sort of focusing on that particular lifeboats metaphor. And I, I put it out on National Coming Out Day, uh, which was uh, October of this year of 2018. And, you know, it, it resonated well. It's been viewed about 200,000 times and just had an incredible response. Uh, and again, the, uh, the point of it was just to really challenge parents with, hey, if your child comes out to you, here's here's what you kind of need to not do. And here's a better way to respond. Oh, and it was so beautifully done. I loved that video and I wept through that video. I just cried and cried and cried. It was so well done. And you captivated that episode so well. And I, you know, out of all the episodes you have, I kind of wondered, why did he choose that one? Why was that the one that he chose to make a video of? Because I feel like you could make a video out of all of them. But was that the reason why was because you had received so much feedback from that one episode? Yeah. I, I don't know how to say it other than just in my gut, this one felt different. Yeah. This one felt special. You know, and that, that's how it felt when I wrote it. And then once I began publishing those posts, I mean, again, that was the one that just, it just gripped people by the throat. And I just, you know, and I hate saying that, you know, I feel like it's from God because we don't know, you know, none of us know what's ultimately from God and what's just from our brains. But I, you know, I did, I felt like it was from the Lord and that he was the one, you know, sort of animating that story. And so that was why. And I just think, you know, at the end of the day, I still hear stories of just parents getting this wrong, Yeah, you know, of, of parents not responding well in that extremely precious and vulnerable moment when a child musters the courage to come out to them uh, there is just, there are still so many terrible things that are said in that moment. And, you know, parents, they, they have their own journey to deal with. And so a lot of what they say is just reacting out of emotion. But, but, uh, but that was really it. I just wanted this to be a little tiny glimmer of hope pointing potential parents in the future to say, hey, if and when this moment comes to your doorstep, when a child comes out to you, here are some thoughts. Here are some things that you can remember that will help you navigate that moment better. Mm. And you mentioned the parents portion of this whole journey, which that's one of my favorite things about your work is the heart you have for the parents of LGBT kids. What has sparked that part of your work and why why is it so important to you? Well, thanks for asking, Anna. This is the thing I'm probably most passionate about of all the different angles you can take with this particular topic. But, you know, what really sparked this was after Blue Baby Spring came out, again, I got invited invited into lots of people's stories closeted folks, and out folks, and Christian folks. And one recurring theme I just kept hearing over and over were these nightmare stories of when kids would come out to their parents. Because this conversation, it's unlike any other coming out conversation because they're your parents, you know, like right. if your best friend freaks out and walks out the door, that's one thing. If your mommy and your dad freak out and walk out the door, that is 
devastating, particularly if you're, you know, younger in life. And so I just kept hearing stories of kids being devastated. I kept hearing stories of parents not have, having any clue what to do, because again, parenting is hard enough, you know, yeah. but there's lots of good advice and books and podcasts out there for how to be a good parent. There's not so much stuff out there of how to parent a gay child or how to respond to a child if, you know, your child comes out as gay. And so, you know, I've talked to so many parents now, you know, the two most common emotions that they experience are fear and worry. You know, because again, especially for parents coming out of a Christian or conservative context, I mean, this is terrifying, right? I mean, you feel like your child's going to be ostracized. You feel like they're going to potentially be discriminated against. You feel like they're potentially, you know, a lot of parents fear their child's going to get an STD. And then at the end of the day, you know, you feel like your child is going to go to hell. And so, boy, this just plunges parents into, you know, for many parents, a downward spiral of emotions. And so I've likened it to, you know, it's like, it's like going through all the stages of grief. You can literally see that tracking in parents when a child comes out. It's very, very common. And again, to make matters worse, they're, they're doing this alone Mm -hmm. nine times out of 10 because, you know, churches don't have a good response. If you're a parent to go talk to your pastor, your pastor's not going to know what to tell you if you've got a gay child. Right. Uh, There's not a, you know, you can't walk into your local Christian bookstore and get a a book about, you know, what to do if your child is gay. And so parents withdraw, they pull into themselves. And so now they are saddled with all of the similar emotions that their child has been dealing with their whole lives. They're, They're saddled with shame. They're saddled with fear. They're saddled with anxiety. And they have no outlet for that. And so, again, this is why I started a, the program I've started is called Harbor. It's an online support program for Christian parents of LGBT kids. And I just have so much compassion for parents um, because this is a hard journey. And, it, you know, it's easy to say, well, parents, you know, you should get over yourselves. And this is about your kid. But it doesn't work like that in the real world. Parents still have to deal with their own emotions and their own thoughts around this. And, you know, how are they going to talk about it with Uncle Dick, you know, and in Nebraska, how are they going to talk about it with the friends in their Sunday school class? And so what I've tried to do is just to step into that gap in between parent and child and to try to create some sense of stability, some sense of peace. One of the big things I focus on, particularly for parents who are on the more conservative side of the spectrum, I'm really big on helping them understand you don't have to choose between your faith and your child. Oh, that's so good. It is possible. It is possible for you to... to Stay true to your convictions as you see them and to love your child lavishly and to love your child's person if they get, you know, dating, married, engaged, whatever it is. And so so that's something I'm really, really uh, uh, passionate about is helping parents learn to just love their kid no matter what. Because the ultimate goal is that parents would maintain long-term influence with their child, right? And this is, you know, the big mistake a lot of parents make is they they blow up early on, they make a big list of demands and they threaten the child, you know, this, that, and the other, and they've lost influence. Yeah. And that child moves off or moves on and that 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 relationship is is irreparably harmed. And so what I just advocate for is say, parent, just number one, don't do any harm. Like, just don't say anything terrible. Don't shame. Don't make threats. This is a situation that they did not choose and it's a situation that you cannot change. And so really it's an internal battle. This is more about you, the parent, than it is about the child. And so, you know, I love this stuff. I I have loved seeing parents be transformed by that, by leaning into grace, leaning in understanding, uh, you know, draining out all the fear they have around this topic. And so, you know, I really don't have an interest, Anna, in being a part of this bigger debate happening in the church of theology and who's going to hell and, you know, why the affirming crowd is all wrong. You know, I really don't have a, a... a stake in that. I don't want to be a part of that. You know, that, that I call that sidewalk theology. Yeah. 
you know, there's a whole cottage industry now in the in the Christian subculture of books and podcasts and talking heads who are very passionate about why being gay is wrong and homosexuality is wrong. We've got to defend our church and defend our, you know, theological spectrum. And at the end of the day, it doesn't affect them. You know, right. it, it affects me. It affects LGBT people every single day. It does not affect so many of those folks. I have really just tried to disengage from that global argument and instead reinvest my energy into these parents and into their kids and trying to create some sense of peace, trying to inject grace and sort of diffuse all that negative energy that's swirling around. Oh, I love that. And I have to ask you, is that has that been hard for you to disengage? Because that whole world that you just described is very loud. <laughs> it's a very loud world. Yeah. You know, it is hard. And, and you know, I, it's I'm not perfect. There are days when I jump into that and I'll, I'll make, you know, I'll fire off a tweet or have a strong opinion. Um, it is. It's really tough. And I think that's what makes it so difficult, Anna. It's just, boy, this whole issue has been framed as this is a gospel issue. This is the thing that's going to bring down, you know, the Christian church in the Western hemisphere. And it's just all garbage. It's all fear mongering. Yeah. It's not the case at all. You know, I've said this many times. We know statistically three to 5% of the human population falls on the LGBTQ spectrum. So what that means is if, if you're a pastor of a church, 95 to 97% of your congregation will never quote unquote struggle with this. They'll never deal with this. You know, right. uh, being gay is not contagious, you know, show, you know, being around gay people, seeing gay people on TV, we have zero data that shows that that makes more people gay. You know, <laughs> this three to five percent number is fixed, and so, uh, so there's just there's no reason to be scared. You know, now granted, there are religious liberty issues that have to be you know worked out in the civic sphere, but when it comes to just uh, you know gay people in general, you know, Anna, all we want is to live very normal lives. Yeah. You know, we are no more fixated on sex than your average straight person. What we're fixated on is living a beautiful life with someone that we can love, someone that we care about, having someone to come home to, someone to go on vacation with, and someone to build a family with. And those are the most beautiful things in life. You know, there's yeah. there's there's no reason to be scared of people that are pursuing that, uh, you know, in a in a pluralistic society like America. And so so yeah, it is. It's hard for me to just ignore that sometimes, but you know, we just we can't change people. I I've quit trying to change people. It's utterly pointless. All I can do is change myself. All I can do is try to, you know, add love and uh, speak truth into the world as best as I see it. Well, and speaking of the beautiful parts of life, such as marriage and commitment and families and all those good things, we can't leave this conversation without talking about your beautiful part of your life. So yeah, yeah congratulations on the new marriage. Thanks. Gosh. Uh, yes, it's awesome. You know, Anna, like uh, I, I married, I got married in, in March of 2018 and my, my husband's name is Brett, which you may know this. My my original name was Brett Trapp. He's Brett Harmon. I've since changed my name to BT Harmon, took his last name. Um, he's also from Alabama. He's also, you know, sort of a late bloomer like me, didn't date till his, you know, thir 30s-ish or late 20s. And so, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Neither one of us ever thought we'd be married. We never thought we would have someone. We had just resigned ourselves to a life of loneliness and sort of forced mm. celibacy and, and forced singleness. And gosh, I mean, you just... You could not find two more grateful people, you know, two happier people. You know, we are just doing our best to to create and live a really beautiful story. We have so much love for each other, so much love for the community that we're in. We feel so grateful, you know, for all the the negative and challenging things, you know, with the LGBT community. I, I really believe that 
being gay in America in 2018, 2019 is honestly, it's kind of the best time in all of humanity to be alive. If you're gay, you know, like (laughs) yeah, there's stuff wrong, but there's so much stuff right. And the fact that I was able to marry the love of my life in a public setting with the state's blessing and with, you know, friends and family there. And now we're able to make a home in Atlanta. It's just unbelievable. And I just have to pinch myself every day. And so, yeah, we're just thriving. We're learning. We're making all the same mistakes. Every other married couple makes in their first year, we're learning to not be selfish and we're learning to be selfless. You know, we, we watch Netflix and we make quesadillas on the stovetop at night. Like we're just a really, really average couple. There's just nothing weird or unusual about us where, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to be. And we're just trying to, to live a really beautiful story. And so, yeah, I just feel it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. I'm so stinking grateful. I'm thankful to be alive and the world is just, it's really beautiful. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I am like, I'm, I'm giddy. I'm grinning from ear to ear, just listening to you talk about it because you can tell how happy you are. Like you are so at ease and happy and right where you're supposed to be. And it just, it radiates out of your voice. And I love it. I absolutely love it. Well, you're very sweet. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, you know, we know that we know that people, humans do better in, you know, with a companion, they do better in a marriage relationship. And so it's, it's, statistically, again, look at the research. It's one of the keys to human thriving is having someone to come home to. And so we're experiencing that. And this is what I wish for, for so many people is that they would, you know, eventually get to experience the same thing. Oh, I love that. And I love all of of your wedding pictures. I follow you on Instagram and I'm just like, (laughs) look at their wedding. It was such a cool Uh, wedding. You're so sweet. Thank you. It was a fun wedding. It was a really great day. Yes. It just looks so fun. So fun. So, okay, I have to wrap this up. And in closing, my final question for you is throughout this whole journey, which I know it has been a very layered journey for you, but what would you say God has been to you throughout this whole journey? Gosh, I mean, I would just have to say bigger. God's just bigger. I mean, we knew that growing up in church. I mean, you're like mm-hmm. me, Anna. We, we grew up hearing that God was big and that... <laughs> he's omnipotent and he's all these things, but what's crazy is that he's actually bigger than the religious system we've created for him to fit in. (laughs) Mm. You know, like I I just think the, the arrogance of thinking that here in the early 21st century, this group of predominantly white quote unquote evangelical Christians have, we figured it all out. We have mastered theology. We have, we have, you know, studied history and we've studied the Greek and now we have come to a perfect understanding of God. And, and, and sadly, this is what a lot of, what a lot of Christians think, you know, depending on their theological persuasion, uh, this is the belief. And, and we're, we're, we're a species, a, a subset of, of America that's just obsessed with certainty. You know, we just crave certainty. We preach yeah. certainty. Everything is certain. These are the ones going to heaven. These are the ones going to hell. That's the end of it. And we figured it out. And that's, there's nothing else to figure out. And I just think God laughs at that. You know, I just think, boy, the minute a group of people begin to think they've got it figured out, you know, that just reeks of pride. And I think God just does a, he does a big, hard pivot away in the opposite direction. And Mm -hmm. I think when God pivots away from the religious leaders, uh, you know, he's pivoting towards the marginalized. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's what Jesus did. I mean, it's like, this is not, this is not a non-biblical position, it's the most biblical position uh, that when a certain group of religious folks get really, really confident, really, really certain, I think God just, he does a little double take 
and he starts going the other way. And I think that's what we're seeing now is we're seeing uh, God doing really interesting things on the fringes where you would not expect to find God amongst the rainbow flags and the uh, people of color and women leaders, you know, all these things that we hear about. I really, I'm really convinced it's a work of the spirit and, and we're all just kind of waiting for everyone to figure that out and to jump on board with that. Cause once they do, I think they're going to find new freedom. <laughs> they're going to be set free from this addiction to certainty and this addiction yeah. to um, theological uh, rigor to the point of, of, of obsession and, and Bible worship, which I also think is toxic. So yes. Yep. That's what I think. Well, it's not a, that's not a popular thing to say, you know, I'm in a lot of circles, but that's really, that's really what I believe. No, it's, it's the gospel story. Truthfully, like that is where Jesus always stood, was always on the outside. Every time a line was drawn, he jumped over the line and stood with those people every time. And I think you you wrapped that up beautifully because this is the God story. This is the big God that we all get excited about. And now it's like we're seeing a whole new chapter of that. And I love it. I absolutely love it. Brett, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you so much for sharing so much of your story. And Please tell everyone where they can find you, where they can find your blog, all the things. Well, Anna, you're so sweet. I love what you're doing. Love your spirit and your heart and just respect your work so much, your podcast, your blog. I've, I've seen it all and I'm just, I'm just inspired. So keep it up. Um, yeah, if people want to find my stuff, I am, uh, a personal website is btharman.com. That's got more about what I do and my consulting work, some of that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, I would just challenge you, if you don't know anything about my story, go to bluebabiespink.com. That's where to start. And once you get on that side, it'll sort of push you in the right direction. If you want to begin this story, you can go there. You can type in Blue Babies Pink in whatever podcast app you use and you'll find it there as well. But uh, but would love to love to meet some of your folks. And uh, if you, you know, are on all the social media things, shoot, you, shoot me a message, say hello. would love to meet you. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I know a lot of people listening are already huge fans of you, and they're super stoked about this whole episode. But for a lot of them, you're a new voice. And so I encourage all of you guys to follow his stuff, follow his social media, and and read all of your stuff if they haven't read it yet, because your blog is captivating. So love well, it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, Anna. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.